When you are building something no one has ever seen, something no one has ever imagined, who can you turn to for help? The answer is the other people who are facing the same issues you are. Those product inventing, boundary pushing, design obsessed folks who are just like you. Welcome to AWS Startup Stories. I'm Michelle Kung. And I'm Michael Copeland. What follows are the tools that work, the leadership practices that make a difference, and the lessons you only learn by building a company. And one more thing, what startup jockeys do with a very rare item, their downtime. So let's get to it. We're taking a deep dive into ASEAN in the following podcast, talking with founders and investors from one of the world's fastest growing startup ecosystems. From Singapore to Ho Chi Minh City, Bangkok, Jakarta, and other parts of the region, hear how entrepreneurs are tackling this massive market, what investors are hunting for, and why startups are having such an impact across all dimensions in this part of the world. Welcome to the AWS Startups Podcast. I'm here with YTCU, who is the co-founder of Jernixu, which is a full-stack financial services and fintech company based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. YT, welcome. Hi, Michael. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to ask, how are you doing? How is Kuala Lumpur? And uh, everybody's keeping it together, I hope. Not too bad. We went through a fairly strict lockdown and we've come out of that. Um, so case numbers here, COVID case numbers are, I'd say, under control. They're rising again, um, but under control. And you know, what I see on the kind of positive side is that, um, you know, and I believe this, I believe people and societies will, will just slowly get used to the new normal. Yeah. So not, not too bad, all things considered. Well, I want to talk about the new normal for you guys in your business, but you guys have an interesting past. I mean, you guys have been around since 2012 and have grown into this full stack approach to, to FinServe and FinTech. Take us through that. Like what, I, I know what you started with, but what did you start with? How did you see the opportunity and how did you guys end up where you are today? Wow. Okay. So turning, turning the clock back uh, eight years plus, let's start with why, you know, what, why I started this. If I go back even further, right, when I was a kind of a, a fresh grad working in London, uh, this was kind of 2004 to 2010, you know, I, I never had to go into a branch or, or speak to an agent when I needed uh, banking or insurance services, right? I, I just went online. Uh, typically, I went to uh, you know, one of the big online financial comparison sites in the UK. Um, and using those sites, I could get you know, I could get a credit card. I could get a, a savings account. I could renew my car insurance. Um, so it was very, everything was super simple, right? And everything was online. But when I came back to Malaysia, it was 2010, I, it was a huge shock to the system. You know, uh, I'm I am Malaysian. You know, I grew up here, but you know, I had not had I'd lived overseas from 1995 to 2010, so I pretty much had to restart my my personal financial life, and it was just it was just so manual. Um, I spent uh, I had spent two hours in a bank branch to open an account. You know, I had to find an agent to get a credit card. I had to find an agent to renew or just to get car insurance. So even when I tried to go online to comparison shop or to research, you know, what's the best product for me. It just, there was just nothing there. Um, so that was 2010. So, you know, personally, and I guess you could say very selfishly, I was like, well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I love this service, right? It was like, right. you know, just, I just expected there to be, you know, to be able to do this online and it wasn't there. Uh, so fast forward to 2012, what was kind of interesting in, in Southeast Asia was, I think uh, you, that was when the internet boom really started. That's when you really started to see 
uh, investment coming into particular like big e-commerce players. Uh, at that time, it was group buying. Um, and that really changed. I just noticed that behaviors were changing. When, when I started to see e-commerce packages arrive, you know, both at home on a regular basis and in the office, you know, my, my thought was, you know, if people were willing to, to buy and to shop online, um, I think they'd now be willing to find financial products online as well. That was what kind of kicked me off to think uh, now is a good time uh, to start Genexu back in 2012. Uh, so that was what, that was the why. I have to ask, I mean, you know, so 2012, you were in the financial realm. You worked for a hedge fund, if I'm correct. You went through the teeth of that horrible recession. What made you think that you should start a company as opposed to sort of going back to the, you know, I won't say comfy confines, but like back to the banking and kind of financial world? Well, that's, that's a great question. So I suppose it's, if I look at it the other way, you know, what, what, I, and you're completely right, you know, having, having tried many different things, you know, I've worked in a family business, I've worked in uh, sell side and buy side financial services, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for eight years. Financial services is uh, from a, yeah, it, it's a great job to have, right? Uh, and it's not, it's a pretty place to be from a career point of view. Um, but the one thing about being on, on the investment side is, it's, it's, I find it a little bit passive. Right. right. So you, you know, when you wanted to, when you want to, want to make an investment decision, you do a lot of research, you make the case, and then you make the call. Um, but once you make a call on an investment, especially if it's a public market investment, you know, if you, unless you're an activist investor, which is you know very, very kind of niche, um, typically there's nothing you can do. Right. It's it's up to you know it's you wait and see whether your thesis plays out. Right. And you know again, it's it's an extremely fun job, very rewarding in many ways. But what's really cool about you know, being hands-on in a business is, you know, you, you it's up to you, right? Like, it's up, you, know, you control your own fate. Um, and, you know, if you work harder, it pays off. If you hustle more, it pays off. Um, it's not just about being right. Um, in fact, being right is, is a very small part of it. So that, and, you know, looking back, I mean, that's definitely been one of the more, most kind of appealing and fun things to me. Right, which is just uh, essentially being able to control your fate. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a, an incredible way to describe it. And it, it also sounds like you come from an entrepreneurial family. I, w- I was going to ask, like, your poor parents, they're like, oh my gosh, look at YT, he's doing so well. And uh, then you're like, you know what, I'm going to go start a company. And I think for some people doing a startup, is it's always a, a leap of faith in some sense, although it's becoming less and less unusual but was there any friction, worry, um, drama around you deciding to start a company? Uh, no, not not really. I think it's probably two generations back. Even my grandfather on both sides, they were both entrepreneurs, uh-huh. very different businesses. So in that respect, um, no, nothing unusual, you know, because in a way, again, that's kind of one reason, one thing that drove me towards it. Um, you know, I grew up in that world. Right? You know, I grew up seeing family members just constantly start new things. Right. And run and run businesses and build businesses. So to me, it was completely normal. Right. Jernexu is, is a, in some ways a manifestation of something to, to meet your own needs. So you started out with financial comparison, right? Yeah. I, I always say, you know, looking back, um, that I had a, an extremely naive uh, vision or, or goal. If you look at how most financial comparison businesses operate uh, in developed markets, uh, in most cases, you know, consumers go to the financial comparison site. Uh, they they find say the credit card that they want, but when they want to click apply, the consumer gets sent out to the bank website and they complete the application on the bank website. And that's typically how you know comparison websites work in Europe and the US. Um, so we tried that model uh, in Malaysia and we tried it in, in other markets in Southeast Asia. And I can just say that was just a massive failure. 
again, we, we learned the hard way. I think we, we tried that for about 12 months and it was, it was an extremely miserable uh, 12 months because the, the fundamental problem was that consumers weren't actually able to get the product. Um, they could come to our websites, great research, find a product they want. But as soon as they left our website, and as soon as we sent them to a bank website, uh, things would start to break down. Right. Uh, in, in some cases, you know, the, the online application forms didn't work or it wasn't really an application form. The customer would leave the information. It would get put into an Excel sheet and given to an agent and the agent may or may not call the customer. So that that entire process was extremely was extremely messy for the consumer. And it was just a lose lose for all parties. Right? So customers would come to a website they'd try and get a product. They couldn't get it. Um, which means we wouldn't get paid. You know, and then the bank, which was working with us, would say, well, you know, customers who you're sending to us aren't, aren't getting the product. It's your fault. So I think it was probably about 18 months in, I remember sitting down with my co-founders uh, and we, you know, we could see that things just weren't working. And that's when we made the decision to say, look, right, if, if we want to stay in this business, we need to solve the kind of core problem. You know, financial comparison, building great websites, providing great content, it's extremely valuable, uh, but it doesn't solve the core problem, which is, you know, consumers can't actually get the product. And that second part of the problem is, is what we spent most of our history uh, solving. And we're still solving that, right? Which is, you know, how do you enable a customer to, to pick up their phone um, and, and get access to, to new financial services, whether it's banking or, ins- or insurance products, um, just as easily as they could say, book a car, book a holiday or buy something online. Um, and and that, that, that's an extremely complicated problem to solve uh, with banking and insurance products. Um, and that's really what we've built the business on. Once you've solved for it, then you you have a a key advantage, I would imagine. So from from a technical side, how do you guys think about that? And then from a behavioral side, um, how do you think about it? Or is behavior kind of already there? Um, it just needed the right product to to meet up with it. From a, from a technical point of view, the the tech itself is is not super complicated. Um, yes, you know you, you need to build uh, you know as, as with any you know B2C product, you need to build a, a very easy to use front end. but there's only so many things you can do to simplify uh, an application for a financial product, right? Whether you're applying for a credit card in a developed market or developing market, there's still a lot of information uh, which the lender needs to collect. So pure tech itself isn't isn't so much the issue. The biggest challenges are really around processes and in particular working closely with uh, with banks. And this is this has probably been you know the one thing which we invested the most into, which is really really making sure that you know we comply with everything a bank needs, right? You know, for for us to to essentially take an application on on behalf of a bank, taking the application means all the information, all the data, income data, um, identity data, and so on, and collecting it on you know for the consumer, sending it to the bank. Um, that kind of outsourcing that that. Uh, requires anything from kind of six to 12 months of, of onboarding, a lot of due diligence on behalf of the bank. Right. You know, a huge amount of buying internally, obviously, and, and a sponsor to take you through. I think that was, that was probably one of the biggest hurdles we had to cross uh, kind of around the middle, you know, three, four years into business. As a company, you guys are around 100 people. Is that right? Do I have that correct? Right now, about 150. 150. Okay. How does your company break down? Like, are they, you know, 149 engineers and, and you know, one other person? Or, or how does it, what does it look like when you break it down? Right now, it's probably, it's actually fairly evenly split last time I looked at it. So at one point, we had a much, we had more headcount in, in sales channels. Um, I think just uh, actually on your earlier question, you asked, you know, how much of what we do was about behavior as opposed to tech. And having spent eight years doing this, there's, especially in, in Southeast Asia, when it comes to financial products, um, the vast majority of, of the population still prefers human interaction when it right. comes to 
selecting a financial product. So there's no way we could get around that, right? So you know, the, the data showed that, research showed that. So we, at some points in our history, we've had fairly large kind of sales channels, whether it's face-to-face or, or tele, right? All augmented by tech, but essentially, you know, traditional uh, sales channels. But at the moment, no, we're about probably 15, 20% uh, evenly split across all core functions. Right. You raise an interesting question, which, you know, given what we're all going through and this proclivity to, to the human aspect of things, how has your business changed? And I know that there's, it's one thing, like you're not walking into a branch so much, um, or at least not as often and not as easily, you know, you're not having those conversations face to face oftentimes, but then there's also other regulations and, and kind of exigencies of, of just everybody's financial situation right now that are impacting financial services all around the world. So, so what are you guys seeing and, and how are you guys shifting to meet the challenge and meet the needs of your customers um, during this period? Oh, good question. So if I break that down kind of B2C and, and B2B, uh, and we knew this, right? So as soon as, as cases started to take off in elsewhere and in Malaysia, and as soon as we, we, we expect the lockdowns to come, you know, we, we sat down and we asked ourselves, you know, what, what's going to change in terms of consumers and what's going to change in terms of clients? And, you know, what are the new problems uh, they're going to have? And you know, what can we as a business do to address that? Most financial products, I'd say, follow kind of follow consumer discretionary spending, right? So if consumers are, are spending less on discretionary products, they probably don't need as many credit cards, probably don't need as many loans, uh, may not buy as much insurance. So we've seen a, a drop in demand for that. I think that's you know you can see that also in, in Google search trends um, and online search trends. But the the kind of flip side and what we what we really saw take off just like a rocket was um, this kind of need for personal finance advice, hmm. uh, and that you know, we saw that on our particularly on our, our content, right? And at the time we were only doing written content, but we you know, we in, in Malaysia one of the things the government did was uh, they put in place a, a mandatory loan or yeah, loan moratorium, uh, both for consumers and for small businesses uh, for six months, right? So essentially a, a consumer or business could opt in to not paying their, their loans for six months. Um, you know, and we, you know, we covered that in a great amount of detail and our blog just took off like a rocket. It was just incredible traction we got for that. And, you know, since then we've kind of more than doubled down on, on content and advice. You know, we've gone from just written, written to videos um, and, you know, we, I, I joke, you know, our first, our first video we did was one of my co-founders and our editor, uh, they spent half an hour, um, talking about how to understand your electricity bill. <laughs> it, it's just fascinating. It just really? It really blew me away. And it's because, and it's like, why did you do that? So, Hey, you know, everyone's working from home. Yeah. Um, and everyone's just seen the electricity bills explode. So yeah. everyone's like, Hey, am I getting ripped off? You know, how do I understand this? They literally spent half an hour talking about electricity bills, how to read it, trends in other markets. And it's it's oddly engaging. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, it make it makes perfect sense. Like, because I, I think we're all, like you said, you, you know, you're at home staring at your electricity bill online or whatever it is, and wondering, you know, oh, should I be, you know, using the air conditioning less or or whatever it is? But in some ways, you have the time to do it. But I also think that like there's this in our lives, in our financial lives, there might be periods where we're like, oh, let's go out to dinner. You know, why not? You know, whereas now one, you can't and two, you're like, well, maybe we should be watching our money more carefully. Um, so I bet there's a lot of that as well. Absolutely. And it's, we can really see it, you know, the demand and the, the level of engagement for personal finance content is, is, is incredible. Um, so we benefited from that on the kind of consumer side and on, on the client side, when you, you know, when you look at, um, this, 
you know, let's look at banks, for example. Obviously, in a recession, banks are, are going to be more conservative, right? So they're not going to lend as much. Uh, they're going to tighten their credit. But, you know, they still have challenges, right? Like banks, as the, the bankers themselves, still have KPIs to, to hit. You know, they still want to grow their loan books. And they also need you know, solutions on, on how to better manage quality. Uh, so those are the kinds of areas we're looking at on the kind of B2B side, right? Which is, you know, how do we help them acquire, you know, higher quality customers? Um, how do we help them monitor those customers? Um, what can we do to help them, for example, uh, with customers who go bad? And kind of just going back to first principles, right? Which is, yes, things are definitely going to change, right? We saw things change very fast, um, but it's really, we, we thought a lot about how we use what we have in terms of our data and our tech to, to help solve problems. Do you think you come out the other side of this with a different approach to your customers and to your business? Or maybe not a wholesale different approach, but like a, a different sort of flavor and or product or approach or, I mean, does it change things you think for a, a longer term period than, than we might think? Oh yeah, actually, I, I, that's a great question. It triggered me because I, I completely forgot. You said, you know, what, what else have we done to change? You know, on the consumer side, we knew, you know, for a fact that far fewer consumers were going to get a for, for credit products, right? Particularly credit cards and, and personal loans. But there's still going to be all these consumers coming and looking for these products, right? So, you know, how, how do we help them? So one of the things which the team has been building, and in fact, we'll launch it next month, is essentially a tool that helps educate consumers about their, their credit standing um, and what they can do about their credit standing. And, you know, right, right now, it's I think in, in, in markets like the U.S., uh, you know, credit scores are, are very, very well understood, right? People know who who to get their credit score from, what it means, how they can make it better. But in, in a developing market like, like Malaysia, we actually have a very, very good credit bureau, but there's very little understanding about, you know, what, what is a credit bureau, what is a credit score, and how does it impact my ability to, to borrow? We'll be launching a product around that to really help consumers, um, not so much just to give them a credit score, but to help them understand, you know, what are the different elements of a credit score uh, and what do they need to do to, to improve it, right? Whether it's, okay, if you've got a debt ending, can you settle it? If you've borrowed too much, can you refinance? Um, so those kind of, kind of little micro pieces of advice. And, you know, it's, it's the product's not out yet. Um, but when you said, you know, when you asked, do we think that what we're doing now is going to fundamentally change the business long term? Yeah, absolutely. Because we we spent most of our history trying to solve the kind of access issue, right? You know, how, how do I how do I enable access to to say a credit card or personal loan um, on a mobile device or on a computer? That problem is still being solved. It's not perfect, um, but it's I'd say it's good enough. So now we're really focusing on kind of using our data and using our tech to to improve outcomes for consumers, right? It's really about providing almost like providing advice, right? We're, we're not a digital financial advisor, but that is that's now the new the new long term goal. That's interesting because th- this combination of, you know, like you say, what, what amounts to advice, the content that you guys are putting out there that's resonating well in the, in the marketplace. In combination, like what does that build between you and your customer that's different than kind of what you've done before? I mean, like you said, before what you guys were thinking about and building around was access and making it easy and making it efficient. Do you feel like you're with content, with this advice that you're you're kind of going a couple of layers deeper with your customers? And what does that start to become for you guys as a company and in, in that relationship with your customers? Yeah, I've thought of, we've been thinking a lot about this. I think what, one, one of the struggles we've had over the years is how to build a brand, right? Because when the business was very much you know, built on uh, the front-end financial comparison and kind of a back-end digital application channel, the best way to describe it is I think our relationship with our consumers was extremely transactional. 
yes, you know, we gave them a better experience. Sometimes we gave them better value with promotions, um, but we're just a, a channel to access the product and to get the product. It works, right? It, it allowed us to scale uh, fairly quickly, fairly large, um, to be unique and so on. But you know, I think there's there's very few you know, really successful big B2C businesses that don't have very strong brands. And that, right. that was a kind of one thing which I think we were missing. Right. And I think that the things which we've been doing over the last three to six months around, you know, better content, better advice, uh, adding new functions, adding new B2C products uh, to help consumers uh, better understand their, their credit. Um, all of these things will deepen our relationship with our consumers, right? It gives, them re- gives our consumers reasons to come back um, because, you know, we're not just a one-stop shop for, for access and for transaction. We're, we're now a brand which they, they come to for help, right, for, to better understand something, uh, and so that you know, our goal is: hey, you know, when the consumer interacts with us, that interaction should lead to a better financial outcome for them, right? Whether it's a content, whether it's a transaction, um, you know, whether it's a access to a credit score. Yeah, I think that's that's a really amazing point. And what you guys are an example of is like how it takes a very deliberate kind of progression. You don't just sort of build that trust and build that brand. You know, because you decide to do it, you know, there's, there's steps to be taken and, and again, a relationship to develop with your customers. And I think you guys are a really interesting example of how that's how, at least how you guys are doing it and, and how it can be done. My colleague Denning has told me that you are, uh, you are at a, a sort of an Amazon masterclass on our leadership principles and seems like you know them as well as any Amazonian might. And I'm just wondering how you came across them and, and kind of how they mean something to you. Yes, I, I managed to win a, a Kindle because uh, I think I remember more than anyone else in, in the session. <laughs> For the record, I've never won a Kindle. So you're, you're doing better than uh, I have. No, that was um, also a really amazing experience. So how did this happen? Uh, I think it's because like as a consumer, uh, when I was living in London, I just, for lack of a better word, I just kind of fell in love with Amazon as a service. And it, it got to the point where, especially after my son was born in, in 2009, we'd pretty much have a box arrive from Amazon almost every day. It was just insane because, you know, it was free. The shipping was free. So right. rather than stopping, stopping someone click and next day it arrives. And it just blew me away how just how simple it was to use that service. So that was kind of on, on the consumer side. And then on the business side, I kind of started with the shareholder letters, right? And you know, the, the the original 1997 uh, letter from Jeff Bezos, uh, which he republishes every year. You know, I keep a copy of that. I read it pretty much once a year. And obviously, obviously I read his the other letters. Right. And it, it just seems like, like one of the best guides out there in terms of, you know, how do you build uh, a complex e-commerce business, right? What are the key things to focus on um, and what's really important? And then when we, you know, when we were thinking about our culture, you know, what matters to the business, uh, you know, Amazon's leadership principles were kind of a simple guide. Now, it, they're not so simple, right? And that was one of the yeah, things that yeah. was explained. And even we struggle as a company. It was just too complicated. There were too many of them. So we've, you know, we have our, we simplified it into our own kind of uh, core values. If I may, can you tell us what your core values? Because that's, that's really what I wanted to get at is how these things sort of ripple out there and then you make them your own. So how did I choose or how did we choose our core values? Um, I think the exercise I went through was, you know, I looked at what made that very successful working relationship um, between the, myself and my five other uh, co-founders. You know, I'm one of six co-founders. So what, what really created that successful working relationship between us that allowed us to scale, you know, from C, A, Series A, Series B? And, you know, we broke down to, to trust, ownership uh, and communication. 
you know, we we absolutely trusted each other, right? Not not just in terms of you know uh, the, uh, the kind of traditional sense, but trust and ownership together, right? Look, if someone says they're going to do something, then you know they're going to do something, and you know communication is is obviously a huge part of that, right? And especially very very frank and and open and honest communication. And I think it's it kind of goes against human nature, right? To be to be upfront and to be to be frank with people because you know most people don't like bad news, right? Most people don't like dealing with problems. But in order to to grow as a business and, and, and as a team, you know, if there's a problem, you have to solve it, right? Whether it's a business issue or a people issue. And you know, the, the more upfront you are about it, and uh, the, the better, right? Because if you're not upfront about it, you're, you're never going to get to the root cause. And if you don't get to the root cause, you just kind of sweep a problem under the carpet. Uh, chances are it's just going to get worse, right. right? So to me, those three pillars or those three, the three pillars really made up what what I thought were, were the most important things in terms of this working relationship, which I, I think to me that that's kind of what culture is, right? Which is, it's, you know, it's a guide on, on how we, how we want to work together as people. Well, Whitey, with your permission, I would like to get to these four questions that we ask all of our founders and co-founders and, and people building teams. So uh, let's jump in. Give me a tool that you use on a regular basis. Uh, I think the the kind of the easy answer is something like you know uh, a cloud based note app, right? Something that allows <laughs> me to to write a note down on my phone and then pick it up on on my desktop. And similarly, you know any of the cloud based kind of file backup apps. Right? I think those two were massive game changers in, in terms of how I worked over the last couple of years. But that, that's I think that's kind of fairly generic. You know, one of my favorite tools in general is uh, it's a combination of, of uh, post-it notes and, and blue tack huh. which i really i always i always keep a piece of blue tack uh, on my desk that's um, funny and wait, i always have post-it notes wait well for people who don't know what it is that's sort of a putty that holds things down yeah 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 so that's so why why is that and i'm sitting here at my desk staring at a piece of blue tack um and i always have blue tack one of the things I used to do when I worked in, in the bank was to stick things down to my desk because <laughs> um, otherwise someone would come and someone would just come and take it. Right. So I'd, right. You know, I'd lose a stapler. I'd lose a, a notepad because someone would just, you know, it's, it's fine. They borrow it, but it never comes back. But the wonderful thing about, you know, blue tack and post-it notes is you can, you know, you can either hold things in place. You always know where they are um, or you can stick up notes, right. For, for post-it notes. So if, even if the stickiness goes um, and the other great thing about uh, post-it notes is, and I I still love writing things down in, in real notebooks, even though it doesn't get backed up and could get destroyed and lost. But you know, once you write something down on a page in a notebook, it's very hard to edit, right? Because it's 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 in pen. But poster notes essentially allow you to edit a piece of paper. Right. right. You can add things on top, you can move things around. Um, so you know, I love I do love poster notes. You know, I've been in meetings where people have like incredibly strong post-it note games where they're just like <laughs> whipping them around like, you know, they're juggling or something. And and you're right. Like you can change the whole character of a brain dump and like what we've learned. And I, I think we could all learn from your post-it note uh, and blue tech. I love that. I, I have to tell you a little pro pro tip about blue tech is it makes for great speaker kind of stick them. If you have to stick some speakers to a speaker stand, it's very sound oh, really? neutral as those audio people say. So just uh, another use huh. for, for your blue tech. Interesting. A leadership principle or routine, something that you do with your team that, that you really think works. Long form written memos, huh. uh, you know, massive, massive fan. No, I, I, I've tried to make this a broader practice. It doesn't work. Right. Because unless someone is already trained in writing long form, you know, trying to 
get someone to change from you know PowerPoint to Word halfway through their career, just it's not worth it, at least in my experience. But for me, you know, I I studied history in university, um, so an essay writer, and then uh, professionally, you know, three years in a hedge fund, writing you know a lot of investment memos. So you know, long form written content is this is very natural to me. And you know, what I find is that it, it really works very well, right? So when 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 reviewing our strategy, uh, I'll write a memo, right, and I'll send it to everyone to read. Or even before a meeting, right? If if someone wants to to meet with me uh, and it's a complicated issue, I'm like, hey, can you write it down for me first, um, so that you know I can take a look at it. And in many cases, actually, asking someone to write something down, not in in, in necessary memo, but to write an email, I'll just ping them back and say, no, you know, I read the email, no need to meet, right? I I agree. What you want to do, just go ahead. But it's it's absolutely right, you know, that uh, it's correct that from the long written form um, doesn't allow you to skip things. Right, it makes it really makes you think very carefully about how something is explained and that things flow from one point to the other, as opposed to bullet points, right, which allow you to just highlight and, and skip around. So, massive, massive fan of, of the long form, written form memo. Ha! Huh, because the post-it note is that sort of bullet point at times kind of view or or brain dump, and then you maybe collect all those thoughts and put it into a long form memo. I like that a lot. Another Amazon thing is we have what's called docs, and it's basically that where you write it down you have you're forced to write it down and and make your argument and then everyone gets to read it and talk about whether it makes sense or not and you you know if it does you go forward if it doesn't you know you go back and write it again so i'm a, I'm a big fan myself a lesson learned this could be something that you were happy to learn or something that you were less than happy to learn that's a good question i mean there's almost a new one every week you know, one thing which I, I, I try to figure out was, you know, how do I how do I avoid making mistakes that I don't need to make? And I haven't still haven't figured this one out. You know, I, I spoke to mentors, advisors, board members, you know, CEOs of our investors. So, for example, you know, after we raised our Series B, you know, how do I avoid making those kind of scale up mistakes that you know, Series B companies tend to make? And a lot of them actually say that sometimes you just have to go through it, right? It's like you know, you just have to. To, to know what it's like to hire the wrong team or you have to know what it's like to try and scale too fast. So I said I haven't figured that one out, but I suppose lesson learned, I'd say run at your problems, right? So yeah, I think it's, it's human nature to run away and there's nothing wrong with that, right? right? Because facing problems is, is painful, right? It elicits emotions, either in yourself and in, in the people you've got to solve the problem with. So it's the opposite of human nature. And I find that, you know, working with mature, high-performing teams, very often the right thing that needs to be done tends to go against the grain when it comes to human nature, right? And running at your problems is, is, is probably one of the toughest ones. But it's always, it's always better, right? Because right. leaving a problem unsolved uh, just becomes very painful over time. Absolutely. Finally, and, and it, I know you don't have a whole lot of time. You've got a family. You've got this, this startup that you're building. But what are you binging on? What are you watching, listening to, reading, even eating? So I, I just wanted to say... You know, when, when I got the email to say, hey, you know, you're going to connect with, with Michael Copeland, I saw your name. I was like, why do I know your name? It's, it's so familiar. I was at Google and I was like, I've listened to your podcast. I was like, no wonder. And I thought that's why this is such a massive treat because this is, you know, what do I binge? I binge podcasts. Ah, good, good. To me, it, it's, it's just one of the best ways to consume media. My kind of daily drivers, the daily listeners um, are FT, yeah, the big kind of global news podcasts are really, really kind of daily favorites but you know i've i've followed the kind of growth of podcasts ever since the big podcasting companies that started a couple of years ago 
and followed them very closely because you know one of them famously did, did a series on how they started their business, right? That's then been sold on to one of the global audio players. So massive, massive fan of podcasts and also audiobooks. Yep, I've been a long time subscriber uh, of Audible. So yeah, the uh, big fan of deep, long form uh, audio content as well. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty amazing. Like, and I apologize for having to have you listen to me for too long, but uh, yeah, audio allows you to kind of go deep on subjects, and it can be as narrow as you want, and you can you know you can go in there and and, and talk about it, and it has a kind of both depth and uh, engagement that's different than than a lot of other formats. So I'm a big fan myself. Well, YTCU, I want to really thank you so much for joining us. You know, I've learned a lot and I wish we had done this sooner and I, I hope we can do it again. One final question, what should we keep an eye out for next? I know you guys are working on this kind of financial advisory product, but what should we keep an eye out for from Zoom? I think that that's really it, you know, how the business is, is evolving from a marketplace to an advisor. Um, we'll have several products launching around that end of this year uh, and early next year. And really, to me, the most exciting one is our kind of credit score advisory uh, tool, which will be launching next month. I, I really believe that's going to fundamentally change our business because it fundamentally changes how we help and engage with our consumers. So that's that's really the most exciting thing to me. Um, but, you know, Michael, again, thank you so much for, for your time. It's been such a treat to, to speak to someone who I've, I've listened to so much over the years. So... Uh, real milestone for me and again very grateful for your time well likewise and i'm gonna go out and get some blue tech and uh work on my long form memos <laughs> and uh i will run towards my problems and not away from them like we all do yt thank you so much thanks michael if you are looking to get started on the cloud with aws our activate program provides startups with a host of benefits including aws credits technical support training and other resources to help grow your business. Head to aws.amazon.com backslash activate for more. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.